Shabbat Shalom, and welcome to all our guests. Greetings to all our brethren and friends around the world. We wish you an inspiring and glorious Sabbath day. Thank you very much, Mr. McCullough and uh, Miss Dorothy, for that beautiful Revelation song. It just how happens that I'll be speaking somewhat on that subject, so you want to have your Revelation booklets available. But uh, beautiful praise to the one who was and the one who is and is the one to come. Just very, very beautiful. Uh, yesterday, uh, Charlotte set a new uh, record or tied an all-time record of heat temperature up to 104, and uh, today may be up to 105. So please be careful, as Mr. League was cautioning you, uh, with this heat. God is blessing his work here, and, of course, you are all a part of his work. We will begin broadcasting on BET Network to uh, 88 million additional television households starting July 10th. So we're excited about that. As you heard the announcements, Dr. Meredith has taped both the Feast Introduction Sermon and the Last Great Day Sermon. And God's festivals reveal our purpose in life, but relatively few in the world know that purpose. One survey asked the audience, people, do you know what is the purpose of life? Twenty percent said, certainly, I know. Sixteen percent, I suppose I know. Nineteen percent said, I'm not sure. Eighteen percent said, I don't know, but I would like to. And seven percent said, I don't know, and I don't want to know. And the others didn't even check the question. Some of the responses were as follows, some humorous, and some perhaps intended it to be humorous. But one said, my purpose in life is to survive without hurting anybody in the process. Another one said, don't think about it, just live it. Another one said, my purpose in life is taking quizzes on the Internet. (laughs) Another one said, there is no purpose. And one said, I think it is to enjoy oneself and make as much use of the time we have We only go around once, and I don't believe in any kind of afterlife. Hedonism is the word. Work only in the ways we wish to work, on the things we wish to work on. It doesn't always happen that way, but as near as possible. Reminds me of Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Another person says, no idea. To be honest, I think people have enough problems getting by day to day to worry about a higher purpose. If there is one, it isn't bothering me. Another person says, fluff and fold, buddy, fluff and fold, whatever that means. Another one said, serve God in everything I do. I exist because he he wills for me to exist. And then finally one said, humans will never find an answer to that question. And if they do, they will either not understand it or reject it. But God does reveal his purpose in life for all of us, and we can be very thankful that he's called us to that purpose. We understand it because we keep the annual festivals and the weekly Sabbath, and we tremble before his revelation, his word, that tells us what we are, why we are, and what our purpose in life is. 
And God is witness to the world through his creation. And he's still witnessing to the world through the preaching of the gospel, as it tells us in Matthew 24, verse 14. One way of stating God's purpose for us is that God is in the process of creating a spiritual family through our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Our official statement of beliefs makes this statement about God. Scripture shows that God is a divine family. Let's turn to Ephesians, the third chapter, Ephesians 3. It's a key verse that tells us our purpose, God's purpose. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before that, in verse 13, he says, Do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And for that reason, he bows his knees. But notice it's to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Our former association said, disagreed with the our statement of beliefs that God is a divine family. They said God is one being. He's not a family. And yet, if you have a father and you have a son, what is that? Is that not a family? So God is the father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, where he, the Apostle Paul is quoting from the Scriptures. He said, I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we look forward to our destiny to be born into the glorified, royal, spiritual, immortalized family of God. That's our calling. That's our purpose. But my question for you today is when we are born into God's kingdom as his children, will we be able to see our heavenly father? Will the saint stand before God's throne in heaven? Will you stand before God's throne in heaven? Will you see your heavenly Father face to face? By the end of the sermon, I hope that you'll be able to answer that question with confidence, assurance, joy, and enthusiasm. The title of the sermon today is The Saints Stand Before God's Throne in Heaven. The saints will stand before God's throne in heaven. And that's the title of the Living Church News article that will come out September, October 2012. We've discussed this question in the Council of Elders over the past few years, and all of the council members agree on the question. In the most recent uh, Council of Elders meetings we had last month, that is in May, 17 members, three that were outgoing and three were incoming, so that's why we had a larger group. 17 members of the Council of Elders reviewed the question and were of one mind on the issue. We presented this uh, issue at the recent ministerial conference here in Charlotte, and while there will be questions as to various details, uh, the ministers and wives responded positively. How would you answer the following question? When we are born into God's kingdom at the resurrection, will we be able to see our Father in heaven? You may answer the question and say, well, of course, we'll see our Father in heaven. 
Doesn't any father see his newborn child and rejoice in that birth? Does the child have to wait weeks or months or years to see his or her father? Well, let me ask you, how many of you fathers have seen your newborn child within 24 hours of his or her birth? Let me see your, your hands. So that looks like quite a few of the fathers, most of them, have seen their newborn child. It would seem obvious and natural that God's newborn children, made in his image, would be able to see him. But there's a paradox. The teaching of many Church of God groups would say that since the resurrected saints will have a job to do on earth, and since God the Father will not come to this earth until after the white throne judgment, when the new Jerusalem comes to earth, and that's a thousand years of the millennium and then the additional white throne judgment, which we believe to be another hundred years, God the Father is not going to come to this earth for 1,100 years, and we will not be able to see him in that time. How does God's Word reveal the answer to this apparent paradox? If we don't go to heaven to see him and he doesn't come here to the earth, how will he see his children face to face? Let's understand, you might turn to Second uh, Peter, the third chapter, that God is not coming to this earth until 1,100 years past the millennium and the white throne judgment. See what happens to the earth, Second Peter, the third chapter, and uh, we'll start here in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The whole earth is going to be totally purified. God is not going to come to an earth that has sin attached to it. The earth will be purified. Then he comes down with the heavenly Jerusalem, as we'll see later, and that's in Revelation, the 21st chapter. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the heavens will be dissolved beyond fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. At the end of God's plan for all humanity, all humans will either be glorified children of God or will be burned up as ashes and no longer exist. Well, let's turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, to see that end of the story. Actually, it's the end of one story in the beginning of eternity. But Revelation, the 20th chapter, when the earth is purified with fire, there is the final Resurrection of the wicked who are burned up at the second death. Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone found not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So after the earth is purified, then chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that's what's going to happen with the world, purified, and God the Father will not come to a sinful earth until it's purified. 
So if we cannot go to see Him, however briefly, we will not see Him for face-to-face for 1,100 years. So how do we answer that apparent paradox? One, we believe the Scriptures. And this may be a test for some who will not want to believe what they read. And number two, we understand the big picture. We saw in the sermonette how God has a big picture for all of us, and he knows what's best for us. I recently heard an old World Tomorrow radio program by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and he was saying in this radio program, which went across the whole United States and many other parts of the world, saying God is reproducing himself. That's a shocking statement, and yet that's what we believe. That's what the Scriptures reveal. That's what our purpose in life is. And Mr. Armstrong was telling the world this inspiring, deep purpose for human life. God is producing a family. We just saw in Ephesians 3, verse 14, that the Apostle Paul said he bowed his knees to the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Mr. Armstrong explained that just as God created various animals after their own kind, God is creating after his own kind. You know Genesis 1.26, when God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God is making beings after his own kind. And that process of salvation takes time. It takes time to create in us his righteousness, to create in us his holy, perfect, righteous character, it takes time. And it takes our humility, it takes our cooperation, it takes our being very close to God so that he can create in us that character, just as King David said in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let's turn to James, the first chapter. We're just reviewing briefly here God's purpose and plan. James, uh, the first chapter. Verse 17, James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We can trust God for his promises. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. Again, the King James has it more accurately and uh, more specifically. Of his own will, it says in the King James Version, begat he us with the word of truth. God has begotten us with his Holy Spirit. We are his begotten children. And then we grow over a period of a lifetime to the seventh trumpet. If we're still alive, those who are in the grave sleeping in Christ will hear the trumpet. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, that at the last trumpet, we're resurrected. We're changed from mortal to immortal. We're born into the kingdom of God as glorified sons and children of God. Turn back to uh, Romans, uh, the first chapter, Romans 1. And again, that tells us, we've reviewed this before, that tells us the process that God has of a plan. How are we declared to be God's children? How was Christ declared to be the Son of God? Romans 1, verse 4. 
Speaking of Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, verse 4, Romans 1, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. He's the firstborn of many brethren. So we are born into God's family at the seventh trumpet, as it says, or the last trumpet, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. And we follow the example of Christ. We will be glorified children of God. What kind of bodies will we have? Turn to Philippians, the uh, third chapter, Philippians 2. We just read, or I just referred to 1 Corinthians 15, that this mortal must put on immortality. So we are mortal now, but we will become immortal. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it will be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we will become glorified. And I love that scripture of Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4. This mortal must put on immortality. So we all, brethren, have a, a glorious destiny to be born into the family of God. Human families are close to one another, but some are not as close to one another as they should be. We all have to work at that. But how close are you to your heavenly Father? We have that promise in James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's God's instruction to all of us. So if we're going to be a part of his family, we need to have that bond. We need to have that closeness. Let's turn to John 17. And here's a very important revelation. It's a part of Jesus' prayer the night before he was crucified. And we already saw from the sermonette how Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. John 17 and verse 20. We read this normally the night of the Passover. And how awesome it is that God shares with us the very prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. John 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. How are we to become one? He says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Think about that. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus prayed that we may be one just as we are one, as he prayed to the Father. That would, that would indicate very clearly, brethren, if we have that closeness, if we have that oneness with God the Father and with Christ, we will not have to wait 1100 years to see the face of our Father in heaven. I'll just read an excerpt from Dr. Meredith's booklet, um, Your Ultimate Destiny, page uh, 26. These words of outflowing love are inspiring and magnificent. 
They certainly make clear that those of us willing to utterly surrender to God and let Christ live his life in us through the Holy Spirit will attain to the same type of glory that he attained. We will be completely one with God as Christ is one with the Father and therefore obviously be God. This will be the supreme fulfillment of God's own purpose in giving us life and then calling us to spiritual understanding. And then he quotes um, from John 17, verse 23, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So we are going to be close to God in that same unity that God the Father and Christ have now we will have that same bond. We will be able to live in another dimension. And that dimension is unaffected by time and space. We will inherit the earth, tells us in Matthew 5, verse 8. We will inherit the kingdom, tells us in Matthew 25 and verse 34. We will inherit salvation, tells us in Hebrews 1 and verse 4. We will inherit all things, and we'll repeat that scripture later, Revelation 12 and verse 7. Let's turn to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. You see, God is giving us something that's far above and beyond what mainstream Christianity even purports to understand. Hebrews 2 and verse 7. Of course, he's quoting from Psalm 8, in which David asked, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Then the Apostle Paul in Hebrews verse 8 says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So we know that that is our destiny, that that is our inheritance, that we will inherit all things. That's in the Greek, ta, panta, meaning literally the all. That is everything that's seen, everything that's not seen. And, of course, in the Moffat translation, um, Moffat uh, translates all things as the universe. And that includes the three heavens that Mr. Armstrong referred to, the heaven where the birds fly, uh, the heaven of outer space, and the third heaven, the third heaven of God's throne and, of course, the whole universe. Let's turn to Romans 8, and again, just to get the inspiration of God's inheritance, we are heirs. We're not inheritors as yet, but we're heirs, and we need to have the vision of our inheritance Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we certainly need that kind of boldness and faith in these end times. Verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, the Greek is tapanta, meaning the universe, everything that's seen and not seen. What evidence do we have of that? 
The evidence is that he sacrificed his son for us and delivered him up for us all. And if he did that, how much more will he give us all things along with Christ? Because it tells us in Romans 8 that we are co-heirs. Romans 8.16, I won't turn there. But if we're heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ. Or as it says in the NIV, we're co-heirs with Christ. So God's purpose, brethren, for us is so grand, so awesome, so supreme. Do we even believe those promises? Do we even believe our destiny and our calling? In Hebrews 11, verse 13, it talks about those who died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, embraced the promises, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Have we embraced those promises? Have we accepted those promises, committed those promises, committed to them, and believed those promises? So just to summarize the big picture, God is reproducing himself. His plan of salvation purposes that the first fruits will be born into his kingdom as his royal family, as his glorified, immortalized God beings. And as glorified spirit beings, we will not be limited by time or space. We'll have the ability to transcend time and space. We will be one with our Father and with Christ. We'll be able to see our Father in heaven. As it says in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Brethren, we need to believe God. And these are awesome scriptures, awesome promises. God's love is infinite. He is love. 1 John 4, verse 8, and 1 John 4, 16. And we need to believe what he's revealed in his Bible, his holy word. Sometimes we limit God by our reasoning and by our biases. But can we believe God's awesome plan and can we cooperate with it? Let's turn to Ephesians 3 again. Ephesians 3. One of my favorite promises in the Bible, some of you know, is Ephesians 3, verse 20, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we think to ask or imagine. That's uh, partly in the King James, but let's read it in the New King James, Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. <clears throat> Let's turn to Romans, the 11th chapter. So sometimes we limit God, but he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can think or ask. Romans 11. I remember Mr. Armstrong quoting the scripture. And the context here is that God has blinded uh, some people so that he may excuse me, eventually have mercy on them. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So when you see the big picture, you will understand what real salvation means. When you comprehend your future birth and glorification in God's royal family, you will understand the intimate unity that we will have with God the Father in Christ. 
And you'll have no understanding, no problem understanding the reality and the joy of seeing your Father in heaven face to face. It's a joy to contemplate. And once born as God's glorified children, we will always have access to the Father. Now, how do we know that? As we already read it in John 17, because we'll be one with the Father and with Christ. In the current Tomorrow's World magazine, actually it'll be current uh, just up to today, uh, the May-June Tomorrow's World magazine, 2012, FaceTime by Mr. Roderick, uh, I was going to say Meredith, uh, Roderick McNair. I'll just quote from that on page 13. Seek God's face is the subtitle to that article. Our most important personal contact with God is with God himself. He is the one we want and need FaceTime with the most. Notice Aaron's blessing on Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and give you peace. That's from Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. Mr. Rod McNair continues, We all want God to look on us with favor. We all want his protection, his guidance, and providence. We want God's face to shine upon us. As a loving and devoted father's face beams when he looks at and is pleased with his own children. He continues, the question is, if we want him to look on us favorably, how much are we seeking his face as well? Consider ancient King David's powerful words. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully? This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. That's Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4 and verse 6. So Mr. McNair asks, are you seeking God's face? How do we do that? We cannot yet see his face literally like Moses did. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33, verse 11. God will speak to his children face to face. God spoke to Moses face to face. We seek God's face in prayer now, but we look forward to the time when we will literally, in real time, see him face to face. Now we want to take a look at the evidence from God's word as to will we really be on the th- near God's throne in heaven. If he can't, if he does not come here for 1100 years, will we be able to see him when we are his glorified children? Let's turn to Revelation, the 15th chapter. Revelation, the 15th chapter. Again, appreciate that uh, beautiful special music on Revelation song. The Apostle John is given this revelation. Remember, at the very first verse of the book, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him. So this is God's word. It's his revelation through Christ to us. And John writes in verse uh, 1 of Revelation 15, Then I saw another sign in heaven. In heaven. It's not the heaven of outer space. It's not the heaven of the atmosphere. This is where God's throne is. 
And the context throughout the book of Revelation is God's throne in heaven. Seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. These are born-again, immortalized overcomers, children of God, standing on what? The sea of glass. And where is the sea of glass? Well, just hold your place there and turn back to Revelation, the fourth chapter, Revelation 4, and you'll see where that sea of glass is. He describes the throne of God, which again is a tremendous blessing for us that God has shared with us this description throughout the fourth chapter of Revelation. But verse 6, before the throne, God's throne in heaven, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. And he describes the four living creatures. And then verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before him and saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The sea of glass is before God's throne. So we just read in Revelation, the 15th chapter, right there in verse 1, verse 2, that the saints, those who have overcome, are standing on the sea of glass before God's throne. And they're rejoicing. How are they rejoicing? Revelation 15:3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. But what is the reward of the saved? God's church has always preached against the false idea that faith, when a faithful Christian dies, he or she immediately goes to heaven and has nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. That's not the reward of the saved. And we will continue to preach that that is not the reward of the saved. We spend the millennium here on earth in the white throne judgment ruling under Jesus Christ here on earth. And the heaven of God's throne, as we read earlier, comes to the earth. It's relocated to earth, Revelation 21, verses 23. So at the resurrection, we meet Christ in the air. How will we see our Father in heaven? How will God the Father officiate at his son's marriage to his bride? Some have suggested that the references to the sea of glass refer to God's portable throne mentioned in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. But other than a few seraphim mentioned in those scriptures, the heavenly hosts are not found in the Ezekiel descriptions, as we just read in Revelation 15, because there are the 24 elders that are there as well. So the overcomers will stand before God's throne, and we will see God the Father face to face. One person suggested that the sea of glass is uh, like God's television screen, that overcomers are not really standing on the sea of glass, but God's television screen sees them on earth. Uh, no, do you really believe the Bible? 
Mr. Herbert Armstrong and God's ministers have always said, don't believe me, believe what you read in your Bible. And you just read the overcomers are going to be standing on the sea of glass before God's throne. Let's take another look at a section or reference of the saints standing before God's throne in heaven. Revelation, the 14th chapter. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Yes, uh, some of us will learn to play harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Where is this throne? Before the four living creatures and the elders, the 24 elders we read about in Revelation 4. So this is the throne in heaven, God's throne. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. They're no longer earthbound. They're no longer human beings. They are spirit beings. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. That is spiritual virgins. Anyone who becomes a converted, genuine Christian becomes a spiritual virgin. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And that's a key verse. Understand, where does Christ go? We will be with Him. These were redeemed from among men, again, their spirit beings, being first brutes to God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are found... They are without fault before the throne of God. So remember, the elders are there, and we do come before God's throne in prayer. In Hebrews 4, verse 16, we're told to come boldly before God's throne. But that's in prayer as physical human beings, not as converted, immortalized, glorified spirit beings standing on the sea of glass, or here before the four living creatures and the elders. So they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And where does Scripture reveal that Christ is after the wedding announcement? And you all know where the wedding announcement is. Turn ahead to Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. So at this particular point in time, we are in a sequence heading up to the wedding, the wedding supper. And then eventually we see later on that Christ returns to earth at the battle of Armageddon, as it called, or the great day of the battle of great day of God Almighty. And we'll read about that later as you read here in in verse uh, 13 through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 21. But notice where, where he is. The voice came from the throne, verse 5 of chapter 19. So again, those who fear him, small and great. So Christ is in heaven and he's ready to come back to this earth. Remember, brethren, we already read about having that access to God's throne at any point in time that we we have that that access. 
The saints are going to stand before God's throne on the sea of glass. The 24 elders are there. They are present only in heaven, nowhere else, not at a portable throne described in Ezekiel, as some would like to call it. And God the Father will rejoice with his newborn, glorified, immortalized children. And he will also be with his son, the bridegroom, at the wedding of his son. I hope you've all read Dr. Meredith's powerful article in the March-April Living Church News, 2012, Is It Wrong to Grow in Knowledge? Page 2. Let me quote from that article. Even now, brethren, our Council of Elders is discussing a few technical points that Mr. Armstrong could not have humanly anticipated, considering that he died in 1986 before certain prophecies had begun to be fulfilled. For instance, some of you have already heard Mr. Ames and me refer to the sequence of events leading up to the wedding supper. We all agree, as Scripture teaches, and as Mr. Armstrong plainly taught, that our reward as Christians is not in heaven. After the resurrection, we will be kings and priests on this earth for a thousand years before God the Father comes to the earth with the new Jerusalem. But does this mean that we cannot go wherever Jesus takes us? Of course not. Revelation 14.4 shows that the 144,000 go where he goes. So when we look at all the biblical evidence, can we say that it is wrong to understand that the wedding of the Lamb may take place in heaven before we rule with Christ here on earth? Of course not. Now some, Mr. Meredith writes, may fear this could be a change, but this would not contradict our previous understanding. It would simply clarify a point that we had not understood before. So we, brethren, will have the opportunity to be with God, to be in heaven for a brief period of time, to see our Father, and to be there for the wedding. But, of course, we have to be ready for that wedding, and that's why we come to Sabbath services, to be exhorted every every Sabbath, to be ready, because time is getting short, because the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25 Remember, it said, when the wise, wise virgins went into the wedding, the foolish went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So it's our opportunity to get ready to go to the wedding with Christ, and that wedding will take place with Christ and the saints. But will the Father be at his son's wedding? How many, I'd like to see your hands, how many of you fathers have attended your own son's weddings? Okay, there's not too many who are old enough. How many of you who are married husbands and wives had your father attend your wedding? Okay, well, there's the majority of those hands. Our own ministers who have been fathers of the bride or groom have conducted their son's or daughter's weddings. But remember, God the Father will not come to the earth until it's purified more than 1,100 years from now. Well, let's take a look at the sequence of events so we can get a little more clear on that. And I hope that you have read the, uh, the booklet, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled, and know the sequence of prophetic events. You have the seven seals. Um, you have the seven trumpets and the seven last plagues that give you the sequence of events. And then, of course, you also have 
the day of the Lord. You have the uh, Great Tribulation, Heavenly Signs, and Day of the Lord. And that chart is in the booklet Armageddon and Beyond. So I hope that you'll check that booklet and uh, get that particular sequence in mind. Well, let's turn again to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look at the sequence of events leading up to the resurrection and beyond. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. We read this, of course, at funerals and memorial services. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We are flesh and blood. We have not yet inherited the kingdom. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So it's very clear that the resurrection is at the seventh trump, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So it's at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. I won't take time to read that now, but you can read First Thessalonians 4, the parallel chapter to this. Well, I'll just mention that last verse there in First Thessalonians 4. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, in the earth's atmosphere, And thus we will come immediately down to earth. No, it doesn't say that. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Why would Christ come to get his bride? In the past, we drew the analogy of a crowd going out to welcome the king, which is what we will do. But in this case, the groom is primarily coming after his bride. We read in uh, Matthew 25:10 that the, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the lesson is be prepared, of course, and have oil in our lamps. I remember my first wedding, that is, conducting a wedding as a minister. I was in Cincinnati, and I had just arrived there for my new assignment. And the former pastor uh, was supposed to perform a wedding that Saturday night. And I got a call saying he couldn't make it, and would I take the wedding? And this was just about an hour before the wedding. I didn't even have the wedding ceremony, so the old-fashioned typewriter, I had the phone ticked to my ear, and I'm taking dictation of the wedding ceremony. So finally got to, it was an auditorium in Cincinnati. We must have had about two or 300 brethren there, and it was a couple from Kentucky Hills. And in this particular case, the bride did not have anyone to give her away. And I only had a couple minutes to give the instructions, so I said, Okay, bride, you go to the the, uh, the rear of the auditorium uh, just before the, the end of the aisle, and uh, I and the bridegroom will come up before the, the rest of the auditorium. And uh, when you hear the music, here comes the bride, you bride, you know, come down uh, to us.
Well, the pianist started playing, Here comes the bride, dum, 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 dum. And this goes on and on. But the bride was just standing there and watching her. She's just standing there. She isn't coming. And so all the people start getting nervous or looking back. Where's the bride? I said to the bridegroom, Go get her. Go get her. And so he went up and they came ceremoniously down together. And we had, that was my first conducting of a wedding. So it was very, <clears throat> very interesting. But he went to get the bride. And Christ is coming to get us. We will meet him, of course, in the air. But then we go to the sea of glass and we have that time with Christ in heaven. Let's turn now. Well, before I go do that, I want to just mention something about the uh, the rapture. Because some people say, "Oh, well, what you're you're teaching the rapture." Well, some would like to label our short visit with the Father in heaven as a rapture. This is not a rapture, but the great resurrection of the saints. The false doctrine of the rapture purports to suddenly and mysteriously, without any warning, take human beings to heaven. In one case, for seven years. Some say three and a half, but for one, the one that I've researched was seven years before the beginning of an alleged seven-year tribulation. The rapturists falsely attribute the prince's one-week treaty of Daniel 9.27 as the beginning of a seven-year tribulation. They're in error there. They would deny God's plan and the reward of the saints ruling on earth for a thousand years. But by contrast, Scripture teaches us that we're caught up into the air, the seventh trumpet, to meet Christ in the air. We will be spirit beings, God's literal children, who have been born into the kingdom of God, and we will be one with the Father, and we will not receive heaven as a reward, but we will visit heaven and see our Father, and He will see us. So if anyone, again, doubts that we're teaching, not teaching against the rapture, I would encourage you to see Mr. Rod King's powerful program, Is the Rapture Coming Soon?, with its most recent airing schedule for this coming August 23rd through the 29th, 2012. It shows that the Living Church of God rejects the world's false doctrine and has a correct understanding. Also, Mr. Wallace Smith's telecast, Will Christians Be Raptured? That last aired October 2011, but it's on our website for viewing, so I hope you can get uh, get to view those uh, telecasts, and it confirms our clear understanding on this point. So now we go to Revelation, the 15th chapter, once again. Remember the trumpets that takes place at the last trumpet, as we read, which is the seventh trumpet. And in Revelation 15... The overcomers are standing on the sea of glass, and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, verse 3. Then after these things, what happens next? After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle and testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now remember, you read back in Revelation, the sixth chapter, that the day of the Lord is God's judgment, God's wrath on the nations. 
And then the seven last plagues at the seventh trumpet are God's complete wrath poured out by these seven bold judgments. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So someone asked the question, since no one can enter the temple until the plagues are completed, doesn't that mean that the wedding will take place later? Well, notice it doesn't say everyone in the temple get out. It just says the angels went out and no one was able to enter until the seven plagues are complete. They aren't going to go back into the temple, and no other angelic being is going to be able to go back into the temple. But who is in the temple? The smoke from the glory of God and from His power is in the temple. God, obviously, is in His own temple. So He's there. The seven last plagues then are poured out over a period of time. And uh, they are described here in chapter 16. Now, in the Revelation booklet, and again, I encourage you, brethren, to study this subject. You really need to read our Revelation booklet. But as Mr. O'Gwin writes on page 42, most likely the action, that is, the actions of Revelation 16 leading up to Armageddon in verse 16... Most likely, the action that is described in the book of Revelation as occurring be- between the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 and the putting away of Satan in Revelation 20, verse 2, will take place in a nine-day span between trumpets and atonement. This booklet was approved by the Council of Elders in October 2003. So this has been taught by the Living Church of God for almost nine years, over eight and a half years by now. So at the seventh trumpet, we hear that announcement. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. That's Revelation 11, verse 15. Now let's turn to Revelation 19 and verse 6. We hear a similar announcement. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. Now, Revelation 19, verse 1, says, After these things... So one of the questions that was raised in our our discussion, doesn't that mean that the wedding would take place after the seven last plagues? Well, the answer to that question is that Revelation 18 describes the judgment of Babylon, which will take place during the day of the Lord and the seven last plagues. Revelation chapters 17 and 18 are inset chapters. They are not a part of the sequence of events through the book of Revelation. Mr. Herbert Armstrong made that very clear in his booklet, Key to the Book of Revelation. And you may want to write these down. These are inset chapters. Inset chapters are chapters that are descriptive. They're revelatory, yes, but they don't give the sequence in events. And some people reading the inset chapters mistakenly say, oh, well, this has to happen before that happens. No, they are just descriptive. They are not within the sequential events. Those inset chapters are chapters 2 and 3, which talk about the seven churches, 
chapters 12 through 14, and chapters 17 and 18. So the sequence of events, you're going from chapter 16 then to chapter 19. In chapter 16, we read, of course, of the uh, seven last plagues. You can read the, through uh, verse 8, the fourth angel, Revelation 16, 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given into a scorched man with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, but they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and the kingdom was full of darkness. They blasphemed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. <clears throat> now, when you're in pain, you might think of this scripture and realize, well, maybe I ought to repent. Is there something I need to repent of? Verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So remember, brethren, this is after or in conjunction with the seventh trumpet. And within a nine-day period between trumpets and atonement, these last plagues take place. And they have rapid, and of course, rapid succession. Jesus uh, states in the insert here, verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So we have to read the book of Revelation and and take to heart those admonitions. And they, that is the demons, spirit of demons, gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Har Megiddo, the hill or the mount of Megiddo in northern Israel, which is just 55 miles north of Jerusalem. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from heaven, saying, It is done. And there were noises, thunders, and lightnings, and a great earthquake. And every island fled away, verse 20. So, and you might connect that uh, great earthquake with Zechariah, the 14th chapter, when Christ finally sets foot on the earth. Then you go from chapter 16 to chapter 19. And here, the wedding is, the marriage of the Lamb has come, as it says in verse 7. And heaven is opened. And what happens next? Of course, it says, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse verse 9. Then verse 11. I saw heaven open. This is the heaven of God's throne, the third heaven. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We need to always remember his sacrifice for our sins. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1 and verse 7. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, 
Some will say, well, these are angels. These are not the saints with him. Well, let's just hold your place here and go back to chapter 17 and verse 14. What does it say? These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him in that war are called, chosen, and faithful. So His army does consist of the saints, and that's also um, pointed out in verse 8. As you read the description of the armies in fine linen, white and clean, Revelation 19:14 says they're in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 8, and to her, that is the wife, is arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness acts of the saints. And as we read in 17, Revelation 17:14, those who are with him in, in that war are called, chosen, and faithful. So then what happens? Then, of course, Christ and the armies, and yes, angels are with them, because that's mentioned in, uh, I don't have this reference here, I'll find it later, Matthew 25, <clears throat> I think it is. So the angels are with him, and again, the Bible is not a problem of exclusion or subtraction, it's an exercise in addition, so you add information. The angels are with him when he comes to fight that battle. Those who are called, chosen, and faithful are with him when he comes to fight that battle. So the answer is yes, his armies include the saints and angels, and they come down. Now, of course, he's going to win that battle. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, Revelation 19, 15 that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then there is the, the heaven of earth mentioned, but it's qualified by uh, birds flying in it. In verse 17, to eat the flesh of captains and mighty men. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with a sword which proceeds from his mouth, of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So that army from heaven, just before atonement, wins the battle over all the kings of the earth. It's the battle of the great day of God Almighty. I might just refer you to a couple other scriptures. I won't turn to them because of time, but uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And, of course, that's we just read that here in Revelation, the 19th chapter, in Revelation 17. Let's take a look at Jude. Uh, turn, you might hold your place there in <clears throat> Revelation 19, and take a look back at Jude, to again, to see about that battle. Jude 14. 
Now Enoch from the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all of the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints. Turn back to uh, Psalm 149. Again, to see this judgment, and uh, some may say, I don't, I don't want to be a judge. Well, that's your calling. It's what God has called you to become. So here, Psalm 149 confirms what we just read in Jude. Psalm 149 and verse 9. Well, let's back up here. Let verse 5 of Psalm 149. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth, the two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. If you had that opportunity now to take one of the most oppressive dictators on earth who is killing his own people, Wouldn't you want to put them in chains and save those people from genocide and from killing and from oppression? To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment, this honor have all the saints. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, Christ wins that war. While we're back there, uh, take a look at Zechariah, the 14th chapter. Zechariah 14. Again, yes. Then Christ sets foot on the earth. We saw in Revelation 19, there's a great earthquake when he comes with the saints and with the army from heaven to uh, battle the beast, the false prophet, and the human armies. Uh, Zechariah, uh, the 14th chapter, starting with verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be delivered in your midst. Now, a day, remember, may not be defined as 24 hours. In one case, of course, the day of the Lord, technically, before Christ's coming, is one year. And it consists of the seven trumpets, or the seventh seal of God. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So that could take place any time during the day of the Lord, leading up to the final climax. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. We just saw that in Revelation 19. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. So in that day, that day again is a generic term, and it may be a period of 24 hours, But when we put it all together in the puzzle, we see that it's just before the Day of Atonement or on the Day of Atonement, just before Revelation 20, when Satan is put away. But it's not at the seventh trumpet itself. The term that day is uh, generic in other places, as you read um, in uh, several other verses in Zechariah, the 14th chapter. Uh, well, I, I won't take time now, but if you read Zechariah 13 and 14, the term that day is used quite frequently. And you will see that it's not specifying a one 24-hour period. It refers to God's intervention over a prophetic time period. 
And as we've shown, the day of the Lord is not just a 24-hour period, but primarily the one year leading up to the seventh trumpet. Zechariah 14 and uh, verse 12 uh, shows how uh, Christ is going to win that war. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. So you don't want to be with that war that uh, fights, or those armies that fight against Christ. All right, finally, let's turn back to Revelation, the 20th chapter. And again, we see the sequence of events that we have the seventh trumpet, the saints meet Christ in the air to be with Him forever. They go up to the throne, the sea of glass, before God the Father for the wedding. And then the seven last plagues are poured out in a nine-day period. How do we know it's nine days? Because right before chapter 20, or right start at chapter 20, then I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And so when is Satan going to be put away? We've again taught for decades in the church that Satan will be put away on the Day of Atonement. That's the lesson, one of the major lessons of the Day of Atonement. As uh, Mr. O'Gwen writes on page 42 of Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled, quote, Note that the Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement, the day that symbolized Satan's banishment, At this point, the remnant of all 12 tribes of Israel will begin to be regathered from their captivity to the land of Israel. Isaiah 27, verse 1 and verse 13. So the Feast of Tabernacles that follows the Day of Atonement will be a time of celebration for the wedding of the Lamb. It's time that we can be looking forward to. But as we've seen from the Scriptures, we will be standing on the sea of glass We will be able to see our Father in heaven. We will be able to see him face to face. So, brethren, let's all look forward to the resurrection at the last trumpet. We look forward to our destiny of being born as glorified children in God's kingdom as first fruits. We anticipate meeting Christ in the air at the seventh trumpet and go to God's throne from there. We will see our Father in heaven. We will be one with him and with the Lamb as we read in John 17. And the Scriptures demonstrate that we will not have to wait 1,100 years to see our Father in heaven. We look forward to our marriage to the Lamb. God the Father will conduct His own Son's wedding. As spirit beings, we will live in a dimension where time and space will not affect us, even as we serve human beings as kings and priests for a 1,000 years here on earth. Our reward is not heaven, but we will inherit more than the earth. We will inherit all things, including the universe. As it says in Revelation 21.7, He who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Though some details have been not fully clear, we can see from the scriptures we've read today that Christ will come for his saints on the day of trumpets, and he will be present with his wife, the saints, on or just before the day of trumpets, a day of atonement, rather, here on earth. God is going to complete his wrath through the seven last plagues. 
And that takes place between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Christ is going to put all of his enemies under his feet, and he will rule all nations, assisted by the resurrected saints ruling here under Christ on the earth. We will then teach the nations the way to peace, the way to love of God's law and his commandments. So God has given us a glorious calling to be married to the Lamb. And as Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, brethren, let's look forward to this glorious day that is coming. And I again urge you to read through the book of Revelation. Read it in sequence. Just You can skip over the inset chapters, and you'll see from your own eyes what God has revealed to our glorious future as we meet Christ in the air for the wedding, as we meet our Father in heaven and see Him face to face. Hallelujah.